what really makes us sick is this second tier thinking. At least with the mindfulness, it takes off the second layer of punishing yourself. You're stressed, but not stressed about stress. Or you're scared, but not scared about being scared. You're just scared. Oh, I shouldn't be like this. This is a mistake. I shouldn't feel this shame. Well, we should. It's part of being human. We have to experience this stuff. But it's the sitting up all night brooding about it that does make people sick now. Welcome to the Hurt to Healing podcast with me, Pandora Morris. I've been fighting an uphill battle with my mental health for many years, and it's only now that I've started to see some glimmers of light. As part of my own recovery, I've made it my mission to support as many of you as possible on your own healing journey by sharing conversations that are more honest and more raw than ever before. I'll be speaking to some wonderful people from all walks of life who will open up about their own invisible struggles in the hope that it will provide a bit of solace and comfort for some of you. The Hurt to Healing podcast is proud to partner with Shout, the UK's first free, confidential, 24-7 tech support service. So if you're struggling to cope and need mental health support, please text SHOUT, S-H-O-U-T, to 85258. I'm so thrilled to be kicking off season two with the one and only Ruby Wax. Ruby has been a dream guest of mine since I had my first thought about starting this podcast. Ruby famously left her career in comedy 25 years ago to seek a way to fix her recurring bouts of depression. Ruby has been very open about her struggles with bipolar disorder and depression, going on to study a master's degree in mindfulness-based cognitive behavioral therapy at Oxford University and has since become a devout mental health campaigner. She is now a best-selling author and runs Frazzled Cafe, an online space for people to connect when they're not feeling okay. In this episode, Ruby talks about fascinating issues around mental health, the science behind why we might feel frazzled, and the impact her upbringing had on her adult life. You've spoken about having a very emotionally abusive father and a mum who was mentally very unstable. And I'd love to know how you coped growing up in Chicago with that going on. I don't even know where to start. You know, I, I made it funny for most of my life. So I divide between the funny version and what really happened. And I think if I couldn't do comedy, I would have been institutionalized a long time ago or even more serious. But I could turn it into um, great descriptions of madness. And I, so I launched my career on, on my parents' um, pathologies. And so how did I grow up with it? I turned it into comedy. By the t- I wrote it in, I have a book coming out in May. I called it, I'm not as well as I thought I was. And there's a moment where I turned everything into comedy because I met when I was in the RSC, I met Alan Rickman, and I would tell him what happened in Chicago, and I only did this to make him laugh, because to make him laugh is like winning an Oscar. And I turned everything that happened in Chicago into comedy, but I forgot to see that underneath it, something really terrible had happened. And so I did grow up with it, causing such trauma, and then shut it down, and then became a comedian, and then only recently did I get a really good shrink who does EMDR, who kind of brought it to light about what really happened. But it clearly, it did have an effect. I mean, you don't catch depression. But if you have the genes and then also there's a childhood that's not smooth sailing, you'll pick up that thing called depression. And so it came from somewhere. 
I'm not blaming my parents because I could have had eight other brothers and sisters. They wouldn't have had it. So how did I cope with it? I don't know. I shut down. I shut down and I became a kind of gormless creature with buck teeth and had no friends for a long time. And then one day a comedy button came on and it saved me. And you've described your mum treating you as a bit of a dolly and consciously trying to make you look like boyish and, you know, as you've alluded to, like with your teeth and and the fact that she was sort of maybe slightly jealous of your relationships with men later on. Do you remember trying to seek her approval or yearning for that maternal connection that you maybe didn't have? I think everybody wants their mother to understand them, but we were from, you know, it was like a penguin being raised by polar bears. It was too far away. She wanted a really beautiful daughter and I was hideous. And so um, she dressed me like a boy and my, you know, I did have these tusks and she cut my hair like with bangs that were really too short and dressed me as an Alpenian sheep herder. I was in Lederhosen and she just couldn't believe I was her daughter. I was such a disappointment. I never got her approval. I don't think she got who I was, and I was a real loser to both of them. They never thought I'd have a career, and they never thought I'd even have a boyfriend. They were already making provisions for getting me into a mental institution when I was much younger because they thought nothing would happen to me. And then I said I wanted to be an actress, and I could hear them laughing on the phone, just laughing overtly. And then my mother said, is it cheaper than a mental institution? She didn't say it like that, but I knew what they were saying. And Drama school was about <laughs> 300 pounds a year, and it was cheaper. So they they gave me the money laughingly to go to drama school in Scotland, thinking I'll be back. You have a way with words, Ruby, you really do. When you were growing up, did you feel that sense of rejection and anxiety? I mean, can you remember at school, for example, struggling with friendships, relationships, or did it come out later on? Yeah, I mean, I don't remember having a lot of friends primarily because they didn't let me out of the house. They sent me to school. That's something that came up only recently that I was kind of locked in and wasn't really allowed out and they wouldn't let me mingle with certain people. Later on when I was 18, I totally rebelled and went literally with hell, out with hell's angels. But when I was younger, they selected which people I could see and um, I was sort of in the loser gang. Uh, you know, other weirdos like me who didn't fit in at all and I was friendless and I didn't think I could ever get one. Well, eventually, with the sense of humor, I got the girls, but I never got the guys unless they were gay because men were intimidated by a sense of humor. But they certainly look good. And that's all that mattered when you're about 16. I got the best looking guys. So what then led to your desire to come to the UK? I fell in love with the Beatles and we used to make phone calls to the operator in England just to hear her accent. And then we'd giggle and hang up. We were all overexcited. So I thought, well, I'll come over to England and I'll marry a Beatle. I wasn't a well child. I thought that was totally possible, even though I was grotesque looking. So um, I did come to England when I was about 16. <laughs> My mother sent me to a school in Switzerland to give me refinement. And I ran away and came to the UK. Of course, she caught me and then dragged me back and I was severely punished. So that's why I had to escape. I would never have made it in America. And I would have believed the myth that I was useless. And if you're convinced of it, you do become useless. So when I got here, I was useless, but I thought if I get into drama school, I'll have some kind of identity. Anyway, it was a mess. And you then went to the RSE, is that correct? Yes. That you couldn't say fuck you more to your parents than getting into the World Shakespeare Company when they think you're a loser. So what it does do is it makes you work way harder than anybody who had a smooth sailing background. 
I, so I got to drama school in Glasgow because nobody else would take me. And I worked my little buns off. I could do certain things really well. I'm not a good actress, but I can play hysteria. Duh, because I came from it. And so that got me into the RSC. Which is a pretty highly, yeah, I mean, incredibly highly regarded. But my parents thought they made a mistake and that it was a mistake I was there, that maybe I had opened the wrong envelope. So even when they came, they said, you're never going to get away with it. <laughs> even when I was with Alan Rickman, he, they said to him, she's a kook. They're laughing at her, not with her. And he would constantly say, Mr. Wack, she's quite talented. And they'd laugh and laugh and laugh because they thought, <laughs> you know, they thought this is just a temporary glitch. I'll eventually go back to Evanston and be the loser they thought I was. When you left the RSC, did you then travel to back to LA, which is where you've spoken about having your first major episode of depression? Oh, but that was many years later. That was like, I got here when I was 19. And I, you know, about 10 years later, I went to America to think, I'm so talented. I was in the Royal Shakespeare Company. I think I'll take this talent to LA. And that was my first big breakdown. <laughs> Can you talk to us about that? What led up to that? And what do you think caused the sudden complete breakdown? You know, I'm from the school that depression isn't situation appropriate, that, you know, you could be winning an Oscar and you'd want to hang yourself. So I can't say it's because of this. Maybe it was just time or maybe it was the time and this situation and they exploded. But I went to LA and um, everybody kind of looked like me and I really wasn't that talented. And I didn't have Alan Rickman who saw how unique I was and he made me write plays and shows and they became quite good because I had a mentor. So in LA, I didn't have a mentor. I had to read for these parts like going, I'm not looking for Mr. Right. I'm looking for Mr. Right now. I'd audition for these kind of sitcoms with tears rolling down my eyes and they go, sweetheart, it's a comedy. But I just, it broke my heart. There was no irony. Nobody understood my sense of humor and I'm not perky and in an irony-free zone, I don't breathe. So eventually it got to me. Eventually I, I begged my agent, could I work for him as an agent? Because I couldn't stand the sunlight anymore. So he gave me a desk and I was supposed to represent actors and writers and people would call up and say, who's your best writer? And I'd say, Ruby Wax. And I'd say, her agents, and I was at William Morris, I'd say, call William Morris and ask about her. <laughs> and then I got caught. I was hustling myself, <laughs> sending people to another agency to get me that again, I couldn't make it. And did you seek help when you were there? No, I no, I was breaking. I just took to my bed and they said I had something called Epstein-Barr and that meant I went to my bed and I couldn't get up. I got really ill. I didn't know that was a nervous breakdown. I just assumed physically I was dying and my face turned yellow and then somebody offered me a job back in the UK and I went to the mirror and the yellow left my face. And I sailed out of there and said, I'll never go back. And how long did that episode last? How long did you spend in bed? Eight months. What were the thoughts going through your head though when you were lying in bed? Did you feel a sense of loss? Like, because I know that when I've had depressed moments, I don't suffer from depression per se. But when I've gone into sort of those dark holes, it's just the sort of what's the meaning of life? This like existential sort of crisis of like, what's my place in the world? Who am I in it? What's my purpose? Did you have any of those thoughts? Well, that, no, because I fell too quickly. Uh, you know, just before depression, you might get some foreplay with those thoughts. But when you really fall in, there's no thoughts at all. It's white noise. I always call, say, if it's like people say, well, what do you mean by that? I said, well, if the devil had Tourette's, that's what it would sound like. And so now if you sink into a depression, do you find that the period for which that 
catatonic phase lasts, does it get shorter or is it just a matter of just sitting it out and waiting to see how long? You sit it out. But the last time I had it, and I hadn't had it for 12 years before last time, which was in May, this May, and that's what the next book is about because, boy, did that come out of left field. There's a new piece of equipment called repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is the updated version of ECT, which is electroconvulsive therapy. But they don't use electricity. They use magnets, and it works on 60%. So they tried it on me, and I was out of there in three weeks. I mean, it is a miracle. Wow. So not only did they change my medication, but they used that piece of equipment on me, and that got me out of depression. Otherwise, good luck. You have to wait for it to go. And what's the longest depression that you've had? Five months. But I'm lucky enough to have the you know, money to get a real psychiatrist who tinkers with the medication. People who don't have insurance, God help them, you know, because some GP sometimes who doesn't even have a certificate in psychiatry throws some generic antidepressants. And if you don't have depression and you take antidepressants, it's really dangerous. What's your, been your experience of medication? When did you start taking medication? About uh, 30, more than 30 years ago. And if I didn't have the right stuff, I'd be dead. Do you find though, that you have to change your medication periodically or have you found something that works and you've just kept? No, no, that? I think, you know, if, if it worked, we wouldn't, I wouldn't be doing things like mindfulness or, you know, seeking other ways mm. to be on the front foot for it. Because if it lasted forever, we wouldn't be having this conversation you'd wipe it out like you would a virus. But the problem is, is that you get immune to certain ones or resistant or whatever, and that's why you have relapses. Everybody has relapses. There's a few people who say, you know, I got over it. Well, there's a few people who say they can have one cigarette a day. I doubt it, but <laughs> maybe there are. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I think what you've done, obviously, with your CBT and mindfulness is the real game changer and the thing that really sort of affects a long-lasting change. So will you tell us a bit about that? Because you've done a master's in CBT, haven't you? At Oxford. Mindfulness, yeah. Mindfulness and CBT. Yeah. Well, you know, it's not for everybody, but it had the most impressive results even starting about, I don't know, 20 years ago. And that's what they were teaching at, at Oxford. And I always said, well, they weren't teaching witchcraft, so I decided to go with this one. And it, the, the, if you look at an MRI scanner and you see the effects on the brain when you do these exercises... You know, this isn't some blissful, life-changing experience. This is like hardcore going to the gym and doing endless sit-ups to strengthen, instead of your stomach and getting a six-pack, certain parts of your brain. You don't see it unless you're in a scanner. That's the thing. So people go, I'd rather go to the gym, you know, and get a couple hot dates from that. But the exercise itself that it affects in your mind, it ensures not a blissful life, but that you're able to focus better than other people who don't do the exercise pay attention where you want to pay attention and not get distracted. This isn't 100%. And also be able to kind of lower the cortisol. Not 100%, but you've got more of a shot at it because you've got a muscle. It's like you can lift 100 weights now, whereas the normal person can't do that. Oh, it depends how much you exercise. Over time, it really, you can see what happens. But that doesn't ward off depression. For me, my, my professor would say something else. But when you're out of the trough, when you're in the trough, you haven't got a mind, so I wouldn't see a shrink or people say take up jogging. You can't move. You're inanimate. But when it starts to lift again, which it will, that's when I start going back to the gym, you know, start doing the mindfulness. But when I'm in it, 
if you did mindfulness, it would be just too agonizing. So when you're in the trough room, what, I mean, what do you do? You literally just have to lie it out. Just lie there and hate yourself. And when you're in that state, do you go, is there somewhere specific you go? Or do you tend to stay at home? I mean, No, well, I'm lucky. But... I can go to a hospital. I mean, the reason to go to the hospital isn't because you're taking a snooze and you thought, well, should I go there or take up golf? It's because then the shrink can start playing with the drugs. And it's entitlement that you can be in a safe environment while they're doing that. And is there suicidal ideation or anything that goes to your mind like that? Or are you just too prolapsed to even have a thought about ending your own life? Well, you'd rather be hit by a car than continue like that. I mean, you know, mental agony is way worse than any physical agony. I'm not the first person to say that. So uh, you do think, I don't want to kill myself, but it wouldn't be bad if I was just tapped lightly by a truck because yeah. this can't go on. But I've had, you know, uh, smaller incidents of it coming, but with the mindfulness, I can see when it's coming or I can tell when it's coming or I can intuit it. And then rather than what I used to do, which is throw parties or take on even more work to show the world, look how well I'm doing. That's part of the craziness is I, the last few times I checked into a, a, there was a retreat, it cost like 29 pounds a night or something, and I waited for it to pass. I didn't do any phone calls, I cut it all off and it passed over five days of total agony rather than five months because it, then at least you don't get depressed about having depression, which is, at least with the mindfulness, it takes off the second layer of punishing yourself. You're stressed but not stressed about stress or you're scared but not scared about being scared. You're just scared. We have to experience this stuff. What really makes us sick is this second tier thinking. Oh, I shouldn't be like this. This is a mistake. I shouldn't feel this shame. Well, we should, it's part of being human, but it's the sitting up all night brooding about it that does make people sick now. Hurt to Healing has partnered with Brown Advisory to bring you this podcast. Brown Advisory, a global investment management firm, is passionate about raising awareness of mental health challenges in order to help people thrive in an ever-changing world. A big thank you to Brown Advisory for supporting my mission. When did you really start practicing mindfulness in a serious, structured way? Probably 20 years ago, but then when I went to Oxford, it was 14 years ago. You have to walk the talk. You know, if they catch that you're not doing mindfulness, <laughs> you don't pass. I mean, you have to do it, not just teach it. And do you teach it now with your Frazzle Cafe? Would you try to incorporate mindfulness into that? Well, my Frazzle Cafe begins and ends even with my facilitators who run it during the day. It always tops and tails with a few minutes of mindfulness so that everybody, their minds get a little defrazzled. You know, they can come into the room and they can listen to people because if there's too much red mist going on and too much turbulence, you can't even listen to other people. So what do we, we might as well have a book club. But, you know, the first few minutes is to get everybody into the, well, room, screen, and now everybody's focused and listening. And then at the end, we close it that way too. But I don't, that frazzled isn't about teaching mindfulness. And on the side of that though, in your daily practice, what mindfulness tools do you find to be the most helpful? Well, mindfulness is mindfulness. I mean, mindfulness is taking your focus into the body, like a sentence, and then watching your thoughts pull you away. And then you gently, without beating yourself up, take the focus back to, let's say, tracking your breath. Thoughts come, you pull it back to the breath, pull it back. Or you could be, I don't know, tasting something or 
hearing something but really listening, then the thoughts come, you come back. Those are like the anchors, and that's the equivalent of doing a mental sit-up. You don't try to block the thoughts. The thoughts won't go away. You let them come in, but then you pull them to a physical sense because you can't sense something and be gabbling up here in your mind at the same time. It's two different parts of the brain. So you're training it. You're training it to calm down. Thoughts will always come, but now, rather than getting caught in days of stories, you can gently, gently take it back to that physical sensation. And you're back when you're back in your body, the thoughts don't start taking control anymore. They're just there, and you start to notice that they're like weather patterns. So some gush in like you know turbulent winds, some are raindrops, some are sunny. You don't believe every thought you have. You start to get the idea that thoughts are just a phenomena, like digesting or breathing. They're not under your control. They really do come and go of their own volition. So you start to learn to lay back a little bit and not believe them. Use them, but don't believe them. <laughs> and Ruby, how did you cope with being a mom while managing your depression? Well, I would go to hospitals and Ed would say, oh, your mother's at work. Um, she's doing a documentary. So the kids didn't find out till about 16. And then Ed would take them to see me. And they saw that other people who were around me were pretty interesting. So they learned not to be afraid of it. Because, you know, let's not kid ourselves. Some of the most intelligent people have a mental disorder. And also they could see that medication could work. But in, when they're very young, it is scary if they saw their mother like that. Because that's a person they depend on and suddenly she's incapacitated. That's why kids potentially get depression because they see their mother or their father in that shape and they absorb it thinking, oh, is it my fault? And then they carry it. And did having children induce way more episodes or not? No, it, it didn't induce it, but it, it brought to light that I had depression. But I had it since I was a kid. But when I had my third kid, probably because I had, you know, what, what is that? When you have, you have a baby and then you get depressed. Postnatal depression. Yeah, that thing. I mean, I always had depression, but it really brought it out. Boy, those hormones can wreak havoc. And before that, we didn't know it was depression. I just thought I was having moments of um, Epstein-Barr. You know, depression is physical. So it does feel physical, you know, but they didn't call it depression before. People just sort of I don't know, were lethargic or killed themselves. But they'd separated the mind from the body only recently. It's the same thing. So you could, when you have a depression, assume that it's the flu or you're stoned or somebody dropped because it has a physical feeling. How's Ed, your husband, how's he coped with it? And how have you communicated over the years? I mean, has he found it tricky? At, I mean, obviously he's found it tough at times. But well, he can see it now. You can see depression in somebody's eyes. So when he sees my eyes go dead, then he knows it's coming. You know, but in the beginning, they can't spot it. They just think, well, she's having these flare-ups of anger and then this sudden inability to be who you used to be. But there are certain signs now he can see it. And he's really good. He was a great cover. You know, he didn't lie to the kids, but he could just cover for me. And he knew to get me to a hospital when I needed it. Yeah, which is incredible to have a partner like that, really. I mean, I, yeah. I think probably a lot of people push people away who just can't cope with that strain but actually to have someone by your side who's prepared to you know weather the storms with you is, is pretty incredible yeah and and what about working in showbiz because I mean that must have been really really tough at times while keeping up appearances and then feeling 
the way you did, sort of intermittently? Once I knew I had depression, I was trying to hide it because, you know, you would get fired if they found out. Luckily, my shows were, I i don't work nine to five. So they were clustered. And luckily, I could skirt between them because I only had depression in the beginning once every five years. So I got away with it. It's just let later on, if it happens more and more. But I remember once doing a daily show and I had to go to a hospital between Friday and Monday because I was that out of my mind. <laughs> that was something. That was an amazing incident. I, eventually, I did lose my job. A, because um, there was a job I had that I couldn't think of any funny lines and I'm a comedian. I just went dead. And then I get kind of um, aggressive and angry. And there was a woman producer and she said, I'd never want to work with you again. They didn't understand that was depression. So I did get gradually fired. Do you think that you are a hypersensitive person or because you, you do seem to have this incredible resilience? I mean, you once did a show in the Far East and that you sort of described looking out into a sea of Arab faces, like all looking at oh, you yeah. with just complete disgust. And you decided to turn it on its head and show this sort of absolute love and affection and give them all, so all the prize winners, sort of award winners, hugs. Some huge hugs, exactly. I mean, how do you do it? Well, For I, someone who, when I'm not depressed, I'm really a joy to be with. So that was me without depression. No, I just so if somebody's listening to this, I do talks and I was, there's somebody bought me in Dubai. But the, I don't think they realized what my uh, ethnicity was. Mm -hmm. So now I'm in a room and it was only Arab men wearing, you know, those things on their heads. And they we stared at each other. And there was a sort of a moment where we realized, oops, we've made a mistake. And there was such hatred in their eyes. So I started off saying, you know, I can feel the love flowing into me. And I just like to say I'm sending it right back to you. And they'd have to come up to get their awards. And then somebody took our picture. So I posed next to them like we were having a laugh. Or, you know, I had my arms around them as if we were intimate friends with their horrified faces. But that's me on a good day. You know, if I had depression, I wouldn't have even shown up. So now, do you have therapy? I mean, you've alluded to having EMDR, but what therapy have you had over the years? And, and is that something that you still do now? Oh, I haven't had therapy. I hadn't had therapy in 25 years, even though I have a degree in being a therapist. And I say that I, I went to school to learn how to be a therapist so I could see who was ripping me off because I'd seen every flavor of therapists. But it's, they still didn't get to the heart of what the problem was. So only recently in, in May, the guy who mixes my medication said, I won't do this anymore unless you see a therapist. So I kind of rolled my eyes and said, okay. It turned out she was brilliant and she did get under, under, under what was the problem. And I, I transcribed a lot of our sessions, and that's in the new book, What She Got To. And do you find that although the periods of your depression have got shorter, does the frequency of the episode, has that also got sort of less frequent? Well, it did. I hadn't had it since I got my master's. <laughs> I hadn't had it for 12 years, and then I got it this May. So that's a long time of doing mindfulness. Nothing is surefire. But in the past... A couple times when it started to flare, I could spot it coming. It's like I had my guns cocked, you know, waiting for it. And then I sort of know like a caring mother what to do, which is remove myself from seeing people and doing my usual habits of pretending I'm fine. This time it, it got me by surprise. But I can't live in fear of, oh, God, what if it happens again? Because once you're out of the depression, your mind forgets it. You know, because it's like having a baby. If you remembered how painful it was, you'd never have any more. 
what would be a massive warning sign for you that an episode is about to happen? Well, it starts off very faintly. It's insidious. So I start thinking that people are talking about me or not even talking about me. They just don't like me. And so the paranoia starts is that it's a hoax, that I have no support and that there's real dislike in the air. I start getting scared that everybody else knows what they're doing or is having a great time and has, you know, these fantasy Christmases and I'm alone in the cold. Well, that's left over from when I was a child when it was true, but you still have the movie going on in your head. It was worse than being abandoned, what they did, but I just blanked it out. You get flashbacks, but you can't remember what exactly happened. So you start using these the same paranoia to situations somebody turns their head away and you assume it's because they hate your guts. That's the CBT as you see, you know, cognitive behavior therapy that you realize you're caught in a habit that you can't break out of. I mean, not everybody could hate you, but you convince yourself it's everybody. Yeah. And then the CBT is helping you to basically deconstruct those thoughts and to bust them. But only when you're healthy, once you start getting sick and when you get more and more ill, eventually you've fallen out of an airplane with no parachute. Now I can tell when a depression is coming because my hair has a different texture. And of course, the eyes go glassy and dead. But when you're in it, you're kind of the last to know because I always say, you don't have a spare brain to make an assessment. Your brain is sick. So how would you recognize it? Can you then say that you can ward off a depression now? Or I did in the past. Yeah, I could duck it. But I still had it. It still was incoming. But as I said before, it didn't last as long because I wasn't yeah. giving myself a kick in my ass for having it. But again, so in May, that's not too long ago, I let the demon in. So what would be your advice to someone who suffers from depression? What would you say to them if they've not found anything that's ever really helped or landed with them? You know, I, that's why I started Frazzled, but Frazzled isn't for people who are in the trough of mental illness. If there were more groups, you know, there's bereavement groups and there's newborn baby groups. If there could just be groups for people, I don't know where you'd find them, but that's why when I'm in a hospital, I recover. Part of it is I meet people like myself and we keep going, is it going to be get better? Is it going to get better? And they never get tired of answering you. So if there was a way to meet other people that had the same thing, it would lift you much quicker. That's why, again, I'm going back to Frazzle Cafe, is we can't take people who are in the, the midst of a depression or so because we're not doing therapy. But people recognize the early warnings in each other, and talking is half the cure. Frazzle Cafe is something I run, and I run it every Tuesday night, and there's facilitators all day, even at Christmas, and you go on frazzledcafe.org, and you go on free. But what it is, it's a talk-in place. You know, it's where people speak from the heart. It's very well organized. It's not just a mishmash. There's breakout groups. And people say, understand what I say. What's the weather condition going on in your mind? We are not talking about the news. We're not giving advice. And people know what that means. And they speak their kind of, you know, what their situation is. And you see, I have about sometimes 80 people. You see heads nodding going, yeah, me too. And the minute they say that, you can see the relief on people's faces, that they're not alone. You know, for me, frazzled is the catchment before you fall into a depression or before you think about suicide, because you're seeing other people like yourself. It doesn't make it go away, but it sure is a first step. Yeah, it is. And that's why podcasts like this are hopefully helping to you know, be that first step, that first yeah. level of comfort, people being open and honest about their struggles and knowing that there are so many of us out there. Yeah. 
you've been so generous with your time and I really can't thank you enough for being so open and speaking so candidly about your experience because yeah it's not easy lots of love thank you thank you for listening to this episode of the hurt to healing podcast i'd love for you to subscribe to the show or to follow me on our hurt to healing instagram at hurt to healing pod you might also have a friend or family member that you think might benefit from hearing this conversation so please spread the word Thank you.